U.S. defense chief meeting his Chinese counterparts, we look at what they said about Taiwan. Warren Buffett selling off more Chinese shares for the third time this month. The stake comes from China's biggest electric car maker. The world's biggest microchip maker boosting its U.S. production. The Taiwanese company voices plans to make its most advanced chips on American soil. A Chinese scholar swearing off Twitter, known for harsh or even violent commentary on Taiwan. The platform deleted several of his posts. And Michael Pillsbury tells us about Beijing's secret strategy to replace America as a global superpower. Now the director for Chinese strategy at the Hudson Institute, he shares insight. Welcome to China In Focus. I'm Ellie Hart, in for Tiffany Meyer. Defense chiefs from the world's two largest economies are meeting up in Asia. Their first face-to-face -face meeting since House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan this summer. Beijing, angered by the visit, canceled talks on multiple fronts, ranging from climate to illegal drug trade and defense. As for key takeaways from the meeting in Cambodia, U.S. Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin warned his Chinese counterpart about Taiwan. He called on the regime to refrain from destabilizing actions toward Taiwan. In addition, he urged both sides to keep open lines of communication and brought up what he called the increasingly dangerous behavior of Chinese military aircraft in the Indo-Pacific region. That's according to a readout from the Pentagon. The two officials met during a meeting of defense ministers from Southeast Asia. The talks lasted about an hour and a half, and Chinese officials said the meeting was positive. But Beijing still plays blame on the U.S. for souring relations between them. New stock market moves from a billionaire investor Warren Buffett and his company Berkshire Hathaway. The holding company sold off more shares in a Chinese electric vehicle maker. It's the third time this month. Altogether, Berkshire sold off about $300 million worth of the company's shares. Now, Berkshire owns about 16% stake in carmaker BYD, down from 18% at the beginning of the month. BYD is Tesla's rival in China. It beat Tesla in sales number in the second and third quarters of this year and claimed the title of world's largest electric vehicle maker. A major Taiwanese company says it will produce its most advanced microchips in the U.S. The company's founder made the comments Monday, speaking about plans for the company's new factory in Arizona. Here's the story. Taiwan's semiconductor manufacturing company, or TSMC, looks set to make some of its most advanced chips in Arizona. The Taiwan giant is building a $12 billion factory in the U.S. state. Media has previously reported that the firm was unsure whether the plant would produce advanced 3-nanometer semiconductors. On Monday, TSMC founder Morris Chang said it almost certainly would. Although this has not completely been finalized, let's say it has almost been finalized. TSMC is the world's largest contract chip maker and a major Apple supplier. Its strong position and that of other Taiwanese companies have caused concern that the world is too reliant on the island's output under growing tensions between China and Taiwan. Both the U.S. and Europe are putting up billions in incentives to encourage chip makers to set up shop closer to home. Taiwan's major firms are among those being courted. Three nanometer semiconductors are the world's most advanced chips right now. Mass production of them just started this summer. For microchip technology, the smaller the size, the harder to produce. China can currently make seven nanometer chips. 
but the country still needs years of development before it can mass-produce them. A Chinese scholar is swearing off Twitter. He announced his departure from the platform Monday after Twitter deleted a number of his posts. Named Li, the man is known for harsh and sometimes violent commentary directed at Taiwan. In one of his posts, he wrote that if China invaded Taiwan, Chinese army casualties won't exceed double digits. He used derogatory terms to describe Taiwan's people, saying, quote, whoever resists, China will target his whole family. He added that after the war, Beijing should execute half of the Taiwanese people, so the other half will be, quote, more obedient than dogs. In a separate tweet, he spoke about another situation, if Taiwan surrenders but refuses to submit. His solution, quote, slaughter them, get rid of their leaders. Lee said Monday that all of his tweets from Sunday and Monday had been deleted by Twitter. A notice is visible on the bottom of that post, saying Twitter found that Lee's posts violated rules on hateful behavior. Elon Musk recently purchased the microblogging platform. His e-car brand Tesla manufactures as much as half of its total output inside China. Musk sparked a heated discussion last month, commenting that the conflict over Taiwan is inevitable and suggesting that the self-governed island become a special administrative region under Beijing's control, like Hong Kong. Twitter is blocked inside China. Chinese citizens can only access the platform through a VPN to avoid detection by Chinese police and internet censors. On the other hand, China's governmental agencies under the Communist Party, as well as state-backed individuals in the country, can freely access Twitter. Hong Kong's now-defunct pro-democracy newspaper is back in the spotlight. Six former Apple Daily staff members pleaded guilty on Tuesday. They were charged with conspiracy to collude with foreign forces to endanger national security in the city. The six include a chief executive, an associate publisher, three editor-in-chiefs, and an editorial writer. They were arrested last year during a crackdown on dissent. After Beijing imposed the city's sweeping security law, the law reduced the city's autonomy and made it more like mainland China. Under it, it's easier to prosecute protesters and independent media. The six pleaded guilty to conspiring with the newspaper's founder, Jimmy Lai, and three other companies. Lai and the companies were expected to plead not guilty. Their trial is expected to start in December. The crime they're accused of? Prosecutors point to Apple Daily's English edition, alleging it asked foreign forces to impose sanctions on Hong Kong or China. They also say that after the national security law was enacted, the Apple Daily condemned it as a, quote, evil law and called for resistance. Lai is already in jail after being convicted for his role in a pro-democratic assembly. The event was deemed illegal by the Chinese communist regime. A former NATO general flagging concerns about Chinese stake in a critical port in Europe. What could the risks be in case of a military conflict? Here's more. A warning from a former NATO general about growing anxiety over China's foothold in Europe's third largest port. Once they're there, they're inside the ecosystem of the harbor. General Hodges used to command U.S. Army forces in Europe. The port he mentioned, called the Port of Hamburg, is one of Europe's biggest trade hubs with China. And um, these harbors will be essential for bringing in American and British and other Canadian and other allies in a pre-crisis or crisis. And, and so knowing that the Chinese may be able to influence or disrupt activities at critical transportation infrastructure, that's a problem. Now, almost a quarter of the shares in one of the port's terminals belong to a Chinese state-owned company. 
General Hodges noted the port of Hamburg would be critical in a military conflict. Uh, Bremerhaven and Hamburg uh, are two of the most important seaports uh, that the, on which the alliance depends for mil moving military equipment, not just commercial cargo. Germany's defense ministry declined to comment on Hodges' security concerns. The Chinese foreign ministry said cooperation between China and Germany is a matter for the two countries, and third parties have no right to meddle. Next, an update on China's COVID-19 situation. Cases of the virus in Beijing are hitting fresh highs daily, prompting authorities to urge residents to stay home. Residents in the city expressed discontent Tuesday over the country's strict antivirus spread policies. Most people don't really have enough energy to focus on these issues anymore because their lives are already hard enough. Some of my friends' businesses have gone bankrupt, some have lost their jobs, and many have had their income affected. More cities also resumed mass testing requirements. That's as China fights a spike in new cases. Nationally, more than 28,000 new local cases were reported Monday. That figure is nearly China's daily peak from April. But given the Chinese regime's history of covering up virus data, the true number may be much higher. Now Beijing has closed parks, shopping malls and museums and is tightening rules for entering the city. Businesses and schools in hard-hit districts are also shuttered. This is a political problem, or a problem that has to do with the political environment. It doesn't have much to do with virus or medical prevention anymore. Beijing's municipal authorities recently warned that the city is facing its most severe test from the pandemic. Outside Beijing, residents across the country are expressing their discontent. In Wuhan City, a man was caught on camera destroying a barrier fence. It has been put up to prevent people from leaving a residential compound. In Shijiazhuang City, a group of college students shouted protest from their dorm rooms. And in Chongqing, farmers and their children were seen attempting to leave the village to buy food. A guard, using a long stick, tried to block them from going any further. South Korea is looking to rein in North Korea and is turning to China and Russia to do it. South Korea's nuclear envoy Kim Gunn spoke to Chinese and Russian ambassadors on Monday. Gunn asked them to restrain North Korea from provocations. North Korea has launched a record number of missiles this year, including one last week. That missile was capable of reaching the continental United States. Last week in Indonesia, President Biden told Chinese leader Xi Jinping that he has an obligation to talk to North Korea out of nuclear testing. South Korea's president also called on China, saying Beijing should be more active in restraining North Korea's nuclear and missile ambitions. At least 38 dead in central China Monday, after a fire sparked inside a factory there. Reports say sparks from welding equipment ignited the blaze. The fire broke out at a company dealing with in chemicals and other industrial goods in the central province of Henan. More than 250 rescue workers and firefighters were deployed. It took firefighters about four hours to bring the fire under control. Many of the victims were women who made winter cotton clothes at the factory. The person in charge of the small private firm is now in custody. China has a history of industrial accidents caused by lax regard for safety measures, mostly fueled by rising competition and supported by corruption among officials.
Poor storage conditions, locked exits and a lack of firefighting equipment are often cited as direct causes. Michael Pillsbury, director for Chinese strategy at the Hudson Institute, played a key role in the U.S. initiating military and intelligence ties with China. Since then, he wrote a book revealing China's secret strategy to replace America as the global superpower. American thought leader's host Jan Jekalek sat down with him to learn more. So what I want to get into here now, the, the, the thesis of a 100-year marathon, of mm -hmm. course, is that the Chinese Communist Party has a 100-year plan to end around 2050 to basically subvert America, to take on, to take America's role as the global hegemon. China has a well thought through strategy for how they can turn themselves into the global superpower, largely by obtaining technology, capital, trade, and other goodies, you might say, from America. It's a brilliant plan. It's a long-term hope that if they squeeze the Americans for everything they can and pretend to be America's friend and ally, they will end up number one in the world. They often refer to warring states and the tactics of the warring states period. And one of those tactics was a kind of uh, win or lose, I win, you lose, zero-sum game. Only one country got to lead the world. And that country had to destroy the others or set them against each other or undermine them, steal their technology. All of this is seen by quite a few Chinese in Xi Jinping's own speeches as a kind of guide to the strategy to become number one in the world once again. The Chinese deny this. They say they don't have a secret plan. They don't want to replace America. They don't have any such strategy. Uh, that they will never seek hegemony or global domination, and least of all, not to replace America. So this is a complicated thesis to argue that American-China experts are split. Coming up, Michael Pillsbury was once part of a team in Washington, helping China become a global superpower decades ago. It's part of the reason why the Chinese military and the professors and think tank people, people in the government in Beijing, why they will see me. Because they remember the 70s and 80s when Pillsbury was part of the team to provide intelligence, weapons, advanced technology, trade, uh, help create agencies. We created the Environmental Protection Agency of China. We created the CDC of China. But what made him change his mind? Find out after the break here on China in Focus. Michael Pillsbury, director for Chinese strategy at the Hudson Institute, once believed the words of several U.S. presidents, a strong, prosperous China is in America's interest. But something happened between the U.S. and China to change his mind. Now he's the author of The 100-Year Marathon, China's secret strategy to replace America as the global superpower. Pillsbury spoke to American thought leader's host, Jan Jekelek, about his journey. Well, I'll just, I'll just comment. You, you kind of didn't know, or at least chose to look the other way for a really long time. Somehow, no, no, right? that's not true. Okay. I, I was involved in it. Okay. But the, our laws prevent classified material from being discussed with outsiders. Mm. So I never had a conversation with an outsider. 
uh, saying, you know, <laughs> we are spying on the Soviets through a set of bases we have in Xinjiang province. Couldn't say that. Now you can, because it's appeared in the New York Times, and the Security Review permitted that to be in here. There's a set of these things that I knew about, I was part of. And it's part of the reason why the Chinese military and the professors and think tank people, people in the government in Beijing, why they will see me. Because they remember the 70s and 80s, when Pillsbury was part of the team to provide intelligence, weapons, advanced technology, trade, uh, help create agencies. We created the Environmental Protection Agency of China. We created the CDC of China. Mm. If you go to the internet website uh, for U.S. Embassy in China, our largest embassy in the world, 2,300 people, is in that embassy and our consulates. Uh, 50 federal agencies are housed in that gigantic embassy. Each of those 50 agencies cooperates with China, its Chinese counterpart. But 100-Year Marathon tells the story of how it started and the, the risk that was taken by Kissinger and Nixon to start security cooperation with a communist-controlled government, the leader of whom had killed, by scholarly estimates, Chairman, Chairman Mao had killed between 50 million and 100 million people. Now, he would say it's by accident. They didn't kill each one with a gun. But still, Chairman Mao had quite a few sins to his credit. So why do we end up selling weapons and opening up our economy to Chairman Mao? But it gets worse, you might say, or from the point of view of pro-China people, it gets better as time goes on, and we develop increasingly close relations with China. I remember specifically, you know, the capitalists of the world have central banks in their countries. The central banks get together twice a year in something called the Bank of International Settlements in Bern. Well, the Chinese are like, no, we're not a capitalist country. We're not going to the Bank of International Settlements. And the U.S. prevailed upon them. You don't understand that you'll get a lot of benefits. If you come to this, you'll learn what all the other central banks are planning for the coming year in terms of interest rates and reserves and so forth. So we persuaded the Chinese to go to the Bank of International Settlements, or by the way, there's a private dining room in Chef. They love it. They're very, they feel sorry. They never didn't understand in the beginning what a great club this would be to belong to. We did the same thing with the World Bank, the International Monetary Fund. We told them that you need to be in all the UN specialized agencies because this is the global world order. And one by one, they joined all the UN specialized agencies. There's about 16 of them. And then they began to take them over and they become the directors. <laughs> What was the moment, or was there a moment, or was it just a very slow evolution um, that, that, or was there a specific incident that suddenly changed your mind? There were several incidents along the way. The Tiananmen incident was extremely important because some of the students and also some of the leaders, in particular a guy named Yen Jiaqi, escaped. The French helped them come, some of them, Yen Jiaqi in particular, come to Paris. And they formed a Chinese Federation for Democracy. They said, we're in the exile government. And Yen Jiaqi is a Communist Party member. 
He was head of the Marxist-Leninist Institute in Beijing. But when he gets to Paris, he says, we got to overthrow the Chinese Communist Party. And here's our program. So I was sent by the White House to Paris to meet with Yan Jiaqi and his team and see what kind of money and support, secret support, they might like. And I wrote a memo. The French are helping. Some other countries might if we go in. This is, this is classic American values. This is a group that wants to overthrow the Communist Party of China. And all they're asking for is X. Father Bush, President George H.W. Bush, specifically vetoed the plan. And instead, he sent Brent Scowcroft and Larry Eagleburger to have a famous toast to cooperation in the future. And the various programs, some of the programs were stopped. The one to upgrade their jet fighters uh, was actually stopped in two jet fighters that they had moved to Long Island to the Grumman plant, were folded up and put on a ship and sent back home. We couldn't get the torpedoes back, but there was a restriction that continues to this day, no more arms sales to China. The European Union also agreed with that. So, this, so that was one big moment. But notice what the President of the United States is doing. He's saying, you know, we're not going to support an anti-communist party organization. The second big moment that really shocked me was 10 years later. The demonstrations around our embassy, the isolation of the ambassador's wife back at the residence, Ambassador Sasser in the compound, rocks being thrown over, uh, refusing to let anybody come in between. These massive demonstrations over and over by groups, clearly organized by the Chinese leadership uh, to teach us a lesson. And in between those two, 89 and 99, there was another incident that looking back, I now realize is quite important. Um, that's when they fired missiles over Taiwan, four missiles. And Taiwan's sin for which they're being punished was to have free elections. So missile firings, series of exercises, very, this is all very similar to what happened with Nancy Pelosi uh, when they were sort of punishing her and her family a few months ago. So you, you have 89, 95, 96, and then 99, and then you get, then you, one really shocking moment for me, this is very, very little known, I'm sorry to say, when the P-3 does the emergency landing after the hot dog Chinese pilot Wang Wei essentially commits suicide accidentally, and the plane has to go to land, emergency crash landing in, in Hainan. Um, they radio, we're coming in, but they don't get permission. They're basically put in kind of like a hotel. And George W. Bush says, I want those guys back. This is an international airspace. You know, your guy caused this accident. I want them returned. And Jiang Zemin gives a poem. He goes off on a trip to Cuba. And he reads a poem that an outstanding person should not be pressured by a bully, meaning, obviously, President George W. Bush. So this is all over. They finally release the crew. They cut the plane up, let us send planes and pick up the pieces after they've gone through everything. And then I was actually working in the Pentagon at the time. Then this bill arrives. <laughs> this letter arrives. Please pay China $1 million for food, housing, 
and medical care for the American air crew. <laughs> Oh, yeah, prisoner and cut up, fee, cut up jet fees, right? <laughs> they didn't yeah. ask for the cut up fees, mm -hmm. but the goal of a kind of gangster-like behavior, combined with sending us a bill, um, so it's not just me and my awakening. It's this kind of team I'm in over a thirty or forty-year period, and the team is slowly waking up to this is not the China we hoped for. That's all for today's China In Focus. I'm Ellie Hart. If you have any feedback on the show or have something you'd like to see us cover, send us an email at chinainfocus at ntd.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for watching. Enjoy the rest of your week.